0: Are you ready?
1: Uh, i ready. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson.
0: February is right around the corner, and so marks the fourth anniversary of this podcast. What better way for me to say thank you than to play some of my favorite interviews and funniest moments of the show? Leanda Delisle has long been one of my favorite historians and authors. Her writing style makes nonfiction truly come to life one of the parts i enjoyed most about interviewing her was hearing her dog snoring near the end of the interview and all started when leanda began her discussion on the essex ring be sure to listen for the dog snoring
2: essex ring um I don't know if you can hear this dog snoring in the background. I do hope not, but anyway, I (laughs) apologise to your listeners if you can hear a dog snoring in the background. I have a very small dog beside me snoring rather loudly. Um, Anyway, um, about the story of the Essex ring, which is this ring that um, Elizabeth I is supposed to have given her last favourite, the Earl of Essex, and he betrays her at the end of her life uh, and tries to raise the court against her. Um, And... uh, Um, It's said that he tries to send her this ring um, after he's captured and put in the tower uh, and is due to be executed to ask for mercy, Uh, but somebody steals the ring, and so she never gets it, and so he is executed. Uh, And then her cousin, when her cousin is dying, um, which is actually not long before Elizabeth herself dies, she says that she had taken this ring, and she apologizes to Elizabeth, Uh, and um, Elizabeth supposedly shakes this woman in her bed and says, you know, God may forgive you, but I never can. Anyway, the interesting thing is this ring actually exists and is currently in the museum in Westminster Abbey, Uh, but I tell this month's podcast the true story of the ring, which is actually more interesting than the legend, Um, and um, so people might enjoy that. It's only 10 minutes.
0: One of the questions I've been asking all my guests lately is the time machine question at the end of the show. I really enjoyed Tracy Borman's answer to this question. If I could give you a time machine, what time and place would you travel to? Oh,
2: gosh. Time and place. I think It would have have to be um, April 1536, uh, Henry VIII's court, and I would be on Thomas Cromwell's shoulder uh, as he plotted, as I believe he did, but I'd like to find out for sure, as he plotted the downfall of Anne Boleyn and just find out exactly who was pulling the strings with all that. Was it Thomas Cromwell? Was it Henry VIII? Um, Was Anne Boleyn really guilty? I don't believe that for a second, but I would love to go back and find out for sure.
0: And then there was that time that Dan Jones probably got hate mail from the Ricardians, but I had to ask. As we all know, there's a lot of controversy around Richard III's reign. So what are your opinions on his effectiveness as a ruler and how do you view him?
3: Oh God, you're just trying to get me into trouble. Uh, like I, I almost despair of talking about Richard III because it's impossible to have a sensible conversation. I agree. Um, and uh, objectively, there's very little you can say because Richard ruled for such a short period of time. Um, He appeared to be and probably was a very sort of competent um, deputy or or one of a number of competent deputies to his brother, Edward IV. Uh, However, the circumstances of his accession um, within the context of his nephew, Edward V's accession, um, were just fatal. everybody involved ultimately and it's very hard to assess richard's domestic legacy because there wasn't really one at all i mean people always point to some sort of apparently very progressive and forward-thinking domestic legislation on being nice to poor people but really i mean give me a break like that there is vanishingly little that you can say at all about any kind of domestic program of richard iii because the entire reign was focused on a securing the crown to my mind illegitimately and b defending it to everybody's mind unsuccessfully so what lies in between a few months of sort of scrabbling around really and and I resent actually you've even asked me this question because now as soon as people listen to this they're going to start just hounding me on the internet once again um, and one of the reasons I've run off to the Middle East as it were to write about the Crusades, is so I never have to deal with the fruitcakes and kind of um, wonks who constitute the broad mass of Ricardians. See, so, you know, I mean, even now I'm talking myself into trouble.
0: I very recently spoke with historian Gareth Russell about Catherine Howard. One of my favorite parts of that interview was when conversation led to Edmund Howard, Catherine's father. Now, in your book, I got a kick out of this. We didn't hear very many positive things about Edmund Howard. And there's a a quote from your book that you say, debt seldom stimulates a compulsion towards honesty. (laughs) And I thought that was so fitting for Edmund Howard. Can you tell everybody maybe just briefly what his his troubles were?
1: Sure well I, you know i i I'm laughing because a really good friend of mine uh killum, who you know this would not be the kind of book he would usually read, but he's a good friend uh and his favorite figure was Edmund Howard, like he just said he couldn't stop laughing at you know the litany of mistakes that ed poor poor edmund um well yes you know he he was a younger son of the second Duke of Norfolk and brother of the third and Um, In his youth, apparently very courageous, he fought at the Battle of Flodden um, bravely, if incompetently, Um, and he was a celebrated jouster. And I think that was was part of the problem, because um, during a series of jousts in 1511 he repeatedly unseated and defeated the young Henry VIII and didn't realize that this wasn't an honest competition and you you shouldn't keep smashing the king to the ground off his horse. (laughs) Uh, And Henry VIII really began to nurture a deep, deep dislike for him. In fact, he actively sort of thwarted and frustrated Edmund's career. um, He got a, a, a stipend, a minimal stipend, from the royal household for his service in the wars against Scotland. Uh, and then he became a justice of the peace, which is sort of uh, someone in charge of, of, of local justice in Lambeth, um, where I'm nearly certain his, his children were born. But he, he spent, you know, he spent like an aristocrat, but he didn't have the income of one. So he was chronically in debt and was really, at one point, he, had, you know, he was in charge of supporting justice, but he had to go into hiding from, his, from debt collectors. And eventually uh, his niece, Anne Boleyn, got him a job. Um, as the Comptroller of Calais, and and he moved and suffered, you know, from both physical and financial incontinence later in life, as one very funny letter to Liddy Lyle makes clear. Um, you know, he says something about the fact that he did, you know, he be um, pissed his bed, and my wife hath sore beaten me for it. Um, so, yeah, there, he was a sort of tragic comedy of a figure, and, and I, I think, I sort of tentatively say it in the book, I think it's very interesting to me that one of the recurring themes of Catherine's personality was this almost pathological aversion to humiliation and embarrassment. And I did wonder, was that, you know, was that in part shaped by the many humiliations her father endured?
0: Sometimes there are rumors or incorrect information on the Internet. Sometimes I ask my guests to answer the question, Here's when historian Leanda Delisle explained why Edward VI skipped over Francis Brandon in the succession. And one of the questions I think that comes up a lot in the Tudor world um, on social media is why did Edward VI skip over Lady Jane Grey's mother, Francis Brandon, in his device for succession?
2: Well, I think that's a very good question. And he did ask Francis to come and see him while he was on his deathbed. Uh, We don't Know what was said, but he presumably uh, gave her some good reasons for doing this. Um, I think, first of all, it's worth bearing in mind that Francis w- was, 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 under Henry VIII's will, um, the long-stop heir to, to Elizabeth was, uh, to, to, to Henry's daughter, Elizabeth Tudor, was um, Lady Jane Grey. It was never uh, Francis. Francis was overlooked under Henry's will. And I think there are various reasons for this. I think actually the principal reason is that Henry wanted only very weak heirs to Edward. He didn't want Edward's reign threatened in any way. He was aware that Edward was going to inherit when he was only a child, that Henry would not live long enough for Edward to reach adulthood. Uh, And you have to remember that Henry VIII's uncles were the princes in the tower, the little boys who disappeared um, in the time of Richard III. And he did not want the same fate for his son. So he wanted to make sure that Edward didn't have any ad- adult heirs. Frances was an adult. She was married to an adult man, but therefore a threat. Um, so he overlooked her and went straight to this little girl, Jane, who was the same age as Edward, approximately the same age as Edward.
0: Next up, Nicola Tallis tells us what she found in her research on Margaret Beaufort that surprised her. What kind of surprises did you come across maybe while you were researching that you can share with us?
4: I think I was really surprised by um, what a fun-loving personality Margaret could be at times because I think, like many people, I had the traditional image of her in my head as being quite a dour, uh, serious, and very, very pious individual. And certainly she was very, very pious. But I think I was really surprised by how pleasure-loving she could be. And, you know, we know she absolutely loved to be entertained. And throughout her accounts, we see payments sprinkled to all sorts of entertainers. Um, So, for example, on one occasion, she paid some Spaniards to dance the Morris for her. Uh, On another, she paid a child to sing a song for her. Um, she really, really loved chess and gambling. She was often known to place bets on the results of games of chess. And she also had two fools who um, I think were probably put to quite regular use in her household. So she was a woman who, although undoubtedly very serious at times in her life, was also able to combine this with her ability to have fun. And, she, you know, she sure did like to have a good time
0: and then there was that wonderful time when historian dan jones tells us how he turned his daughters off of history forever
3: it's quite a a big thing to carry to put two people off um the whole corpus of human history but i seem to have managed it
0: and then there was that time in the show when i had margaret george on as a guest and i got to ask her who her favorite tudor monarch is who would you say is your favorite Tudor monarch and why? Well, first
5: of all, we don't have that many to choose from. <laughs> so, <laughs> there's only five of them. So I would say, of course, Henry. Uh, he's he's so operatic. He's so larger than life. And he lived a lot of different kind of phases because the young Henry was so different from the middle-aged Henry who he was different from the old Henry. And uh, you know he, he created uh, a lot of... Social changes, but he also, in a way, was a victim of them. I mean, he had no, he had no power over Martin Luther starting Protestantism, and uh, that certainly influenced his reign. He had no, uh, he had no control over a lot of things in his life. He felt that he did, but but he really didn't. And I thought that that makes him very modern in lots of ways. Cause I think we all feel like we don't have a lot of control over our lives, not as much as we'd like, anyway. But he's a fascinating character, um, and i I kind of wonder what he was like as a young man. I mean, meeting him as a young man would have been really interesting. Um, and he's kind of a tragic figure too, like Nero.
0: He's my favorite one too, and I know a lot of people don't like him just because I think it's popular to dislike Henry the Eighth. Um, yes. And- and you have that fantastic number that he, you know, allegedly executed seventy two thousand people, which makes me laugh because that's a lot of people.
5: <laughs> well, yeah, and that's, that's quoted and it's, it's it's incorrect in the sense that he didn't execute them. That was the law in England. Um, a lot of people got executed, you know, for stealing sheep and and things like that. But that was not directly because of Henry. But it makes a good soundbite you know, to say he executed 72,000 people. Um, But it was a very brutal time. You know, there was no—prisons were not to hold people. I mean, they weren't supposed to stay there. They weren't for rehabilitation. They were just a holding pen until they got executed, usually. So, yeah, that's laid at his door, but I don't think that's quite fair.
0: If you're unfamiliar with the cable television show called Curse of Oak Island, well— I'm not sure this is going to make much sense to you, but I took this opportunity to ask historian Dan Jones about the show and about some of the legends behind the show. I hope you enjoy his answers. And if there's young ears listening, you might want to turn them away for the next couple. Whether or not you believe that they really buried a treasure 200 feet underground on Oak Island.
3: Jesus Christ. No, of course not. That's mental.
0: (laughs) I I just had to get you. The
3: the day they find anything on Oak Island, that show will be cancelled.
0: Thank you so much for joining me on this Best Of episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. If you don't want to miss out on future episodes, please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at tutorsdynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.